Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I am your host, James Butler. It has been a week of scandal here in the UK where the Conservative Party's racism and its border policy seems now to be in a situation of reaping the whirlwind, or so we might hope. So we'll be thinking about Windrush, migration, policy and the state today, picking up perhaps more concretely and in policy and historical terms some of the questions we raised last week when I was talking to the brilliant Lea Upi. And you can uh, check that out uh, on the Navarra Media website. A really great conversation. I recommend uh, it to you. In the studio today, it is a family affair, as I am joined by my Navarra Media co-editors, the brilliant Ash Sarkar and Dr. Doom himself, Aaron Bastani. Hello. Hey. Work one, James. <laughs> I guess it's a fortuitous coincidence this week that we've been running a migration focus on the Navarra Media website. So head on over to navarramedia.com and check out the work there. Uh, and let me just praise Charlotte England, Claire Heimer and Dahlia Gabriel, uh, three of our Navarra editors who have been instrumental in setting that up and seeing it through. Uh, and let me just signpost at the top of the show two fun things. We're in the Financial Times, of all places, this weekend, as part of a rather nice story about the young, new left. Some of us are younger than others. <laughs> um, uh, so check that out. Uh, of course, our birthday party is coming up on May the 11th with some brilliant DJs and a few of us talking about Utopia Now. You can get your tickets for that at buytickets.at forward slash Media. I hope to see many of you there. I am told that the dress code is Theodore Adorn-Ho, uh, just like Adorno in his skimpy bathing suit. I'm also, also rolling... a burger without borders. <laughs> I'll also be rolling my birthday party into it, so come and buy me a drink. So let's go. The current scandal. Uh, tell me about it. I mean... This past fortnight has been an enormous leap forward in many ways in terms of the conversations we are able to have about migration in the public arena. So one way in which it's a leap forward is that finally, finally, we are able to move beyond talking not just about refugees and asylum claims, and we are able to start talking about the nature of citizenship in some limited way itself. We're not just talking about the right to remain via the access of vulnerability, what you are fleeing from, but being able to stay, being able to stay in this country because you have been in this country. And I think that that's a really powerful shift. And I think that it's worth anatomizing this current scandal, thinking of the years of activist and journalistic work, which has gone into um, lifting up people's individual cases of being targeted by the Home Office, and indeed setting some of some of the uh, analytical foundations for how we understand the hostile environment. And since 2012, as someone who's participated in this in various guises, it has felt a bit like fighting a hydra. We've been tackling the policy's outcomes, whether campaigning on individual cases, like I said before, or particular aspects of the policy, like the school census or medical gatekeeping. And while the thinking of activists and a small handful of journalists... <coughs> Ooh, sorry about that. Uh, a small handful of journalists... Just an allergic reaction to the word journalists. <laughs> <laughs> ...has indeed been joined up. It has not been the case that the core of the policy, uh, the policing of people perceived as migrants out of public life, has made it into mainstream discourse in the robust way that I think we are seeing now. 
Now, I'm not for one minute being complacent about what's going on here. So there was some polling that was released last night by Sky Data, which found that 53% of people uh, polled think that the government should still set targets for the annual removal of undocumented migrants. 39% think that there shouldn't be. However, 54% of respondents said that the... um, Brutal, degrading treatment suffered by the Windrush generation is not a price worth paying um, to discourage undocumented migrants from staying in the country. And the public are also split right down the middle in terms of whether or not Amber Rudd should resign. I think we should start saying Amber Rudd resign like it's a double barreled surname, like just to normalise it, Amber Rudd resign. Well, I mean, at least she'll lose her seat in the next election, right? I mean, that was a given anyway, wasn't it? She's got a majority of, she's got a majority of around a, f- a 500 in Hastings yeah. and Rye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After after election night, I kept singing three recounts to the tune of Three Wheel Ups by Kano. Didn't, I think it was five in the end. Was it? I think, okay, I mean, it was let's like catch a, you. It was a comical amount of recounts. I think three recounts in a row, that means I'm a direct reboy, is a... Uh, Great. That's going to be a catchy one. But do you think that there's a window of opportunity here yeah. or at least a, a cat flap of yeah. opportunity to push forward on securing a more migra- a more progressive <laughs> migration policy? But in order to do that, we need to do two things. One is have a conversation that I think that the anti-borders left sometimes holds itself back from having, which is on the road to no borders. What does winning look like mm. step by step? Um, what... Uh, concessions do we make in the immediate for something better in the future Um, even is thinking of this as in terms of concessions deeply uh, problematic should we be thinking about other strategies of resistance as well and also we should be uh, aware and alert to that which could potentially contain the current political crisis so I was talking uh, with you about this this morning is that I think that the framing of Windrush Generation. The Windrush Generation occupies such a specific place within the national consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it is not necessarily an anti-racist place in the national consciousness. The Windrush Generations have, I think, because of subsequent waves of migration, in particular... uh, South Asian waves of migration has been incorporated into a narrative mm. of British nativism. Yeah. There's the stories being told of you know what kind of labour shortages the uh, Windrush generations came to fill, um, and when you and you know lots of people came over here to be doctors or, or engineers and you know high status, well paid jobs. But we talk about bus drivers and we talk about mm. um, you know nurses, like people quite quite low down. So there's this kind of, um, I think, very hierarchical, class stratified way in which we understand it, which is, which is not necessarily uh, accurate. And because I think that there is this almost postcard perfection of the Windrush generation of, you know, they are the good migrants against which all the bad migrants are defined, which also I think uh, does a lot of forgetting of, for example, the white flight from Notting Hill mm. in terms of like, you know, when when the uh, Windrush generation did come here, is that that risks, it carries the risk that this political crisis can be largely contained. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think that's true. I don't think it's, it's, you know, the perfect foundational myth, right, for a sort of slightly <laughs> delusory concept of uh, Britain's relation to migration. We can delve into some of the history of the policy on that a bit later in the show because I think it's important. It tells us actually a lot about how it's actually working. But it's, you know, it's a perfect foundational myth. It's there and, you know, it's even picked up in the, the that uh, Olympics opening ceremony. Mm. You have the Windrush generation. You know, it's a great story because it's a former, you know, fascist ship that's now used to, to kind of ferry migrants over. So it's, a, you know, really self-congratulatory story there. I mean, I think just to... to, to uh, make the point about the the political scandal at the moment. The danger, I think, for us or for the left is 
that this becomes a, a largely political scandal it, 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 as far as competence is concerned, right? Mm. So so these stories coming out, and I think they're good stories and they, you know, we should be attacking the government over them, but it's not just in terms of competence, right? It's not just that Amber Rudd doesn't know or lied or, you know, whatever uh, about, uh, you know, the number of targets set in the Home Office. It, it's about the far wider policy than that. And that, this is the thing that I think we're going to see or we are seeing, but, you know, because it's, it's useful in a way that, that this conversation is expanding because, you know, you have even uh, a, a paid-up uh, Tory Myrmidon, like Matt Hancock, admitting on uh, I don't know whether it was this morning's Today program or yesterday's that the the racist vans, the vans driving around mm. saying "Go home," <clears throat> were wrong. Um, now that's a, that's a key Theresa May uh, achievement. But the, the, and the you know what the government is now going to try to do is to say you know is is to contain this away from the Prime Minister and away from Amber Rudd. If Rudd has to go, then that's a necessary sacrifice. But what they don't want to do is really bring. Uh, that policy and that policy orientation into political contestation. That should be really what we should be pushing. So, like, not to allow it to be reduced into a question of administrative competency or sort of shoddy handling by the Home Office. I think what Ash said around also the the Windrush um, wave of immigrants is really important as well. So, if you look at their how they're situated within British popular culture, for about 50 years, you've got only fools and horses. Who's the only non-native white character? It's Denzel. You look at EastEnders. They've had there for a long time, for a good 20, 30 years. Patrick Truman. Patrick Truman, right? <laughs> I love Patrick Who's a player. Truman. Everybody loves Patrick Truman. And their idea of immigrants were South Asians and Jamaicans, right? It was very much limited to that. And if you go back even further, there are a number of comedies, the Gav Garnet, for instance, also preceding that, where actually the black character or the person of colour, they can be uh, mixed heritage as well, uh, are very reasonable and they're perfectly civilised and polite and, you know, normal. And it's the kind of, it's the sort of indigenous white crank who's clearly unreasonable. Mm. And this is in the public conversation. This is unreasonable to behave like this to these people. They came over here. They've, you know, been quote-unquote good immigrants. Mm. They were, you know, uh, the sons and daughters of British citizens because, of course, these were uh, parts of the empire uh, when they first came over in the early 1950s. So I think, yeah, these people behind... The Windrush generation has a ballast of 40 or 50 years of a sort of popular folk politics which is propping them up in Mm. the national psyche. And... um, it's indefensible, and I, I, which is why I think. Uh, well, I'm just surprised that Amber Rudd hasn't gone yet, mm. and I think it shows actually just that the it, it speaks to the broader political situation uh, and context, which is that she can't. Yeah. But I think under normal conditions, she would have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think this allows us to think about migration policy and the questions of what it means to run a state. So one of the things that. Uh, Leo Upi was saying last week is that migration in particular brings the question of the state and what the state is for, what it does, what it means, what it, you know, the kind of relations that it entails into kind of quite clear and often rather unflattering view. And it's one of the reasons that um, social democrats will often shy away from dealing directly with questions of migration and sort of want them to go away. So that question of geographical boundedness is one thing, but also that idea that the state is kind of naturalised within social democratic approaches to this. state is good, private is bad, the state is a given, its relationships are set in stone. And maybe one of the interesting ways to to go into, you know, to think about policy on this is to look at, so obviously during the Brexit referendum, 
there was a great deal of conversation about immigration. Um, you, know, n- you know, about three quarters of the people who voted to leave said it was one of their top three concerns. Um, 85% actually across the board of both Leave and, and Remain voters said uh, it's essential to reduce the number of migrants coming to Britain. Um, and, and actually about half of the Remain vote also wanted uh, migration reduced. Um, but at the same time, as you've said about this most recent poll, Ash, you know, that there's also that sense among, uh, uh, among the voters in, in that referendum that if the system is well managed, mm. um, you know, immigration can be good for Britain. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that I thought was interesting in, in the wake of the referendum is very quickly after the vote, the TUC sort of rushed out this little report... Uh, called Managing Migration Better for Britain, um, in the the spirit of extremely bland and sleep-inducing TUC report titles. Um, Make racism boring again. (laughs) But so, I mean, you know, and some of the press around it was saying, or the the kind of press that they were releasing around it saying, you know, making migration work better would rebuild trust. It's an interesting position. Uh, And said, you know, oh, well, three-quarters of Leave voters felt that the Remain campaign dismissed legitimate concerns about immigration. And so that question, I think, is interesting to begin with in public opinion, in the nature of public opinion. You know, are these contradictory positions? What does good for Britain mean here? I mean, this is why I think it's so instructive to return to the 1950s and 60s and immigration discourses because, you know, there are bits of policy, bits of oratory which set down themes and we've really not moved beyond them very much. And so of course here I'm talking about, you know, Powell and Rivers of Blood. And um, Stuart Hall's analysis of uh, Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood in The Great Moving Rights Show, which I think is one of the finest political essays ever written. Um, and and actually if I were to go through the finest political essays ever written um, you know, Stuart Hall would probably be like three out of the top five um but one of the things that uh, he says is that you know that speech was able to um you know bring to the surface these magic connections which had existed but maybe hadn't been made so explicit between immigration race so the racialization of immigration which is not a natural process but is one that is is made is deliberately brought into being and images of the nation and national decline Mm. and i think that we haven't moved beyond that in any way shape or form in a way that feels emotive that registers on that level of like it feels true and so i think that where we are now in terms of what this polling suggests is that there you know the little cat flap of opportunity um it me it necessitates that we find a framing for immigration policy, which is normally seen as the business of technocrats. And I think that Mm. that's why uh, there is a perception of elitist interests when it comes to um, kind of loosening border controls, is that that's seen as a very elitist thing to do, is trying to exploit some of that volatility and the lack of joined up thinking there in order to decouple some of these assumptions. And I think that you do that by crafting policy which feels simple, intuitive in some way, and can be uttered in many voices. And so I think one of them, in relation to, say, uh, migration depresses wages, right? So that's one of the things in which pe- which people um, talk about when they're trying to de-racialise migration discourse and, and, you know, also at the same time saying it's bad for Britain, is that migration on the whole, doesn't depress wages. Where it does, it's highly localised and it's, you know, limited to the lower end. But I was talking to someone uh, the other day who was saying, well, that's 
already a toxic discourse to get drawn into because then you start becoming one of those Romaniacs who says, well, it's at the bottom end, so it doesn't matter. So even then, that's not a terrain that you can necessarily win on. And then I was like thinking this over um, subsequently and I was like, well, is this not a way that we can, something we can like lean into where it suits us to agitate for something more progressive so when we go okay migration on the whole doesn't depress wages where it does it's because of you know bosses da, 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 da. so why don't we get rid of forcing people whose cases are being processed into the gray or the illicit economy by just giving them the right to mm. work supporting them to access work and other forms of services because i think that that is a discourse around the state which suits um, people from the right wing through to social democrats. It doesn't really suit, uh, you know, the anarchist left so much. But you know, this idea around kind of bringing into the light, um, mm. you know, of a, a previously hyper exploitable class of workers, I think works in lots of ways. That would be one suggestion of a policy framing and the the you know voice you utter it in. I mean, I, I think the the issue of wages. <clears throat> let's say, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Let's say the jury's not out. I, I agree word for word with what Ash has said. People may dispute that one way or the other. But let's just say the jury's out on that. I think it doesn't really matter because I think when, when people say change is too quick in places like Kent or Bournemouth or South Wales or wherever, these places which voted leave, um, to an extent there's, a, there's an element of truth there because change has been very quick. Specifically after 2005, we were one of the few Western European countries to wholesale accept free movement from the new EU member states. Uh, France wasn't. I think it was Britain, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands. Um, and there's been a terrific rate of change. There's been we've had higher birth rate. We've had the highest rates of birth rates since the 1950s. Population the population has increased as a as a as a as a consequence of both migration and just just higher birth rates generally. There are more black and brown people. This will be a minority-majority country by the 2060s, 2070s, which is to say white people will be a minority. So um, my, my reservation is, and I, I've done this as much as anybody else, which is to say, hey, white people are going to be a minority. Get used to it. Ha, lol. But we also have to understand that that's actually a seismic shift. That's a seismic shift in the psychology of people who think of themselves, they are historically privileged, and they're about to lose that privilege. I don't and think that being majority-minority means they lose that privilege, though. No, 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 no but they, the, the threat of losing that privilege, okay, that we right? And we have to create um, a society or a vision of the good society which actually embraces what that looks like. We can't just think this is not, it, this in and of itself is a good thing. As you've said many times before, you can have minority-majority countries like apartheid South Africa. doesn't mean anything. You can still have stupendous and racialized income inequality. Uh, so I think that's something we really have to think about. But we also have to, we do have to accept that Britain has just been transformed in the last 15 years. And it's, it's, it's really outside of London that I'm talking about this. You know, if you look at... We can take literally forget the wages. Let's talk about the cultural argument. If you go um, to many places, uh, let's go to Bournemouth, you go to a car wash, you'll have um, curds at your car wash. I, I love it. It's great. These are brilliant. I, know, I can now get a good haircut in Bournemouth. I can get a good cup of coffee. These are, you know, these are my people, right? Um, these are, you know, quasi Persian speakers, curds. But that means for 50s. 
<laughs> Ash is laughing. Well, they celebrate Nowruz. We're kind of family, which is Persian New Year. Um, but for people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, that is really a, ro- a real radical change. And so what we need to offer them, and I'm not saying it's good or bad, it's neutral for me. I'm trying to solve the, solve the problem is you need to then, in that context, say, what does the good society look like? What does the socialist offer look like within that context and yeah i suppose as an addendum to that what's the migration policy because the tuc thing about hey how do we do this if it is a minority majority country by 2060 that's an irrelevant question well so let me let me throw out some of the the top line policies that the tuc suggested in this report just after brexit so one migration impact fund um so that ship has sailed yeah, right. But, I mean, you know, and the, the, I suppose one of the dangerous aspects of that is to suggest that... that uh, so what it says is, you know, like, local people should have a say over the funding of local services like schools, hospitals, GP surgeries, should pay for the extra housing needs of a growing population. All of that is true. I don't see why it has to be hooked to migration. Mm. Yeah. Thing. Like, that's a really strange way of approaching that policy. Um, and then it goes on to say all the things you would expect from the TUC, so living wage, equal pay, abolition of posted workers directive, end the loopholes, beef up enforcement, and stuff like that. So all those kind of... Which should all be done, right? Which should all be done. These are all kind of bog-standard trade union policies. You know, it's often applied as kind of panacea. And then it it comes... (laughs) The TUC is also advocating a bigger border force uh, with a remit to prevent trafficking and exploitation to take the strain of enforcing migration laws of employers, landlords, education and health professionals. So this this is to say, you know, beef up the border force... Because the hostile environment is bad, because it troubles people at their workplaces. No, no question about that. Um, but this is really kind of this. I think is a really interesting weak point, right? That just you know, and it's often the kind of trade union approach to things, which just beef up Mm-mm. more, more, more funding, more employment, and, more and actually the politics of it don't come into question, right? And fair enough, that's the TUC's remit. Um, we're here, however, <laughs> to say like the politics of this yeah. are not that great. Um, so, like, a slightly more woke border force. Human trafficking is bad, for instance. I don't think anyone can disagree with that. Um, you know, but, but you know, what worries me about it is that it's a, the kind of out-of-sight, out-of-mind solution, um, which allows it to, to cease being a political issue uh, and, and is a way of just moving it out of the conversation entirely. Um, now, it does pick up one of the things that we have seen over the course of the past couple of weeks, which is that people genuinely don't like the hostile environment policy. They don't think that teachers should be enforcing borders. They don't think that the GPs should be enforcing the border uh, when they're consulting with patients. They, they, they do not like that. That is pretty clear that this actually now offends people. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that... that the political conversation is quite there yet to say that actually the solution to this is not just amping up the border guard. And it is because I think, you know, in terms of that core, that core thing about, you know, the right to be not from here, but to exist in this place, which is the most simple way that I can think of um, putting it down. I don't think that we've addressed outside of, and I I hold my hands up and say that the radical left is part of this as well, outside of, I think, very, you know, liberal, and I use that word in a derogatory way, liberal and a moralising fashion. We've not not thought of a more robust political argument for that in a way that um, really uh, proposes how that this this can be an enriching force. On the human trafficking and modern slavery stuff, because I find this very interesting, it's something which um, a lot of uh, 
feminists will bring up with me quite often is that they say, well, look, don't, you know, I understand that you want, you know, the women out of Yarswood and stuff, and, and I do too. But, you know, don't we have to do something about human trafficking? And when they say trafficking, they generally don't mean things like trafficked agricultural workers or, you know, seaside workers. They, they generally mean, you know, in terms of sexual trafficking. And the thing that I respond with to that is like, well, hang on, if you look at the kind of gatekeeping that has occurred at, um, was it the Haven, the Haven uh, Sexual uh, assault centre for you know um, <clears throat> victims of sexual assault. You've had uh, the case of a woman who had been uh, terribly abused and then being kind of you know shopped to um, immigration enforcement off the back of it. Uh, police arrested her actually and, and took her mm. to the station. Um, is that that is a much more corrosive force than anything that occurs at the border? You know, and and people think of the border as this thing which is you know tracing the outlines of like you know. Um, the badonkadonk of like Britain, like you know, that's what they think a border is. Rather it's a hideous image for you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know? But that's East Anglia. Yeah. Um, I've been to East Anglia. Um, <laughs> so, so they, that's what they think of. They don't think about internal borders, which police people's movement. And I, and I think that that's a failure of political mm. imagination. And again, just to kind of think about trafficking, trafficking is robbing people of a home right how you traffic people is that you make their existence in a place conditional and them taking place in and them taking part in a certain kind of exploitative mm. labor in this case say sex work and so the only way that you can deal with that the only way that you can deal with that is nothing to do with the external border at all and it's everything to do with how you manage things internally and when you think about it in that in that way it's actually got nothing to do with migration either it's got nothing to do with the policing of migration and everything to do with the conditions of vulnerable people and what working conditions that they are forced forced into yeah absolutely uh so i want to move to talk a bit about the history of policy in the uk the history of the uk's relationship to migrants and migrant labor in particular um, but just before we go into that, I mean, I think it's true. And I think one of the things that we've been talking about is that there does seem to be this moment of opportunity in politics in Britain at the moment <clears throat> to really push, to really build on the public mood about this stuff. And, you know, it, I, it's often very frustrating for campaigners when something, it seems after years of work, gets picked up and suddenly is in the press and suddenly people are outraged about it. And you think, you know, why didn't you notice before? I think that's a dangerous political mood. Uh, I think you have to engage with things as they happen mm. politically and really now start to push for... Because I think the Labour Party certainly can be pushed in a better direction on this stuff. Um, and I think actually quite a large part of the British population can mm. be as well. It's important not to overestimate it. These things come and go. But I think there's a real opportunity here. There was the, this great video that Ash did immediately after Brexit when you hey. were in... Was it in Newham? Uh, barking. Barking. And there was this older woman, and I mean, she was racist, right? This older white lady. And she was like, I love Jeremy Corbyn. I'm going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. He's brilliant. Like, and she was basically talking about certain socialist policies or whatever. And then she's like, but I want all the immigrants out. And mm. Ash was like, well, you, maybe you can recount it better yeah, than I can. It was, what this was, was like a paradigmatic example to me of the contradictions. Um, it was a, a family um, sitting outside a cafe. And they'd sort of started by saying um, all these refugees coming over, drowning themselves, um, you know... Uh, why don't they just stay and fight? They should just stay and fight. And I was just like, well, you first, okay? Um, they should just stay and fight. Um, we shouldn't have, you know, why do we have to take them in? And then there was the shift where 
on the one hand was an older gentleman talking about how he was waiting for medical treatment for something like and people were really suffering mm. like you know it was not just like oh you're racist so that's it it's like no you're racist yeah. and you're really suffering and then um, the woman who was on the opposite side of the table said you know I, I like Jeremy Corbyn he's a man of the people he cares about the poor and I was like but he's got a different view from, from you on refugees and he was, she was like well you don't agree on everything and mm. that's fine it was very reasonable I thought actually it was a very reasonable said, response yeah. I mean I came away just being like what just happened? And I, but I think this is one of the things that's really interesting is that people who are political always overestimate uh, or underestimate the the uh, you know ability of the public and people and voters and the electorate to make those kind of uh, trade offs within their own thinking. The idea that there are, there there are kind of these series of monolithic political views. Yeah. Politics much much messier than that in the real world. But on the other hand, and this is just a, a word of of warning, and I guess like this is why I'm so interested in thinking about what drives people's politics beyond the pleasure principle, right? So beyond like your rational self interest. Outing myself as a closet Freudian. <laughs> <laughs> Freud was actually too. good. Um, so beyond the pleasure principle of like things that benefit you directly is that there are also really powerful forces like nostalgia or indeed sometimes masochism. So there was a study done by YouGov in 2016 and it was how much would you be willing to reduce your own personal income by in order to reduce uh, EU migration? And the majority of people, the majority of people said reduce my income by nothing, immigration stays the same. But then the next most sizable um, chunk was reduce my income by 5% to see net migration fall to zero. And so there are, there is like a hard rump, I think, of, you know, almost self-punishing masochists in this country in relation to race and immigration. And I think what's important is to isolate them from everyone else and just say, do you want this person speaking for you on race and immigration? I mean, I, I don't doubt that there are people like that. Mm -hmm. But I think the issue with that kind of data is that there's no baseline experience for your wage is going mm -hmm. down because in exchange immigration goes down. You haven't actually experienced previously other scenario. Mm -hmm. So any statistics without a, sort of a historic baseline, I think mm -hmm. it's kind of, I agree those people exist, but I think, because I remember seeing the numbers and I was like, wow, this is phenomenal. And it's become something of a meme with, again, mm -hmm. the Romaniacs where they say, first time in British history, people have voted to make themselves poorer because they're racist and xenophobic. I, they, they exist and you're right, it's a rump. But I think, you know, we, we also have to understand that a lot of those people responding. I mean, there was actually a very good piece, was it Runciman and the LRB about this? Where he said, I think it was, uh, I look at James, is like LRB, you know. Yes, yes, yes. I, yes. Think, I, I think don't, I, I it was, um, no, I'm, I, I don't always make it to the end. I'm not a big fan of David Runciman. I think, you know, I think he's got a lot wrong recently in British politics, but there was a good piece, I think it was by him, and he said that people voted to leave because they didn't actually think that leaving A would happen or it wouldn't matter because they trust yes, the technocratic elite yeah, right, so much right. that it's, fundamentally it's, yeah. nothing will change anyway. Yeah. So, and, and that is an outgrowth of capitalist realism. Nothing will really change anyway. Mm. And I, I question the seriousness mm. of a respondent's that kind of question. Let me, let's, let's move on and think about the history of policy and how that weighs on today because I think the history of policy in Britain is quite important to understand what actually the political choices that are being made by the people who run the country, where they come from, what they're for. Take so us to church, Butler. <laughs> so, so listen, you look at the history of, of the legal form of controls of immigration in this country and you see really, really clearly just how deeply imbricated they are with uh, the relationship with the British Empire and with the Commonwealth, but also like domestic, economic and security concerns, popular panic, hostility and especially war. So the two world wars are really, really important in changing policy, but we need to go back just a little bit before that and think about the 1905 
Aliens Act, which is kind of the prehistory to this stuff. So one of the things it was in response to was a perception of kind of overcrowding in East London, um, kind of influx of Eastern Europeans, especially Eastern European Jews. So there's a real popular panic, popular anti-Semitism uh, in there. And, and Britain, you know, in the run-up to this had been this kind of uh, burgeoning, smoke-filled, iron-clad industrial power that just loved eating up all the kind of uh, migrant labour force it could and then just throwing them off again. You know, it's a very standard kind of rapid industrialization thing. Um, also had a reputation as a kind of liberal provider of political asylum. So you have, you know, go back to the 19th century, you have Marx here, you have Karl Marx here, but you have many other kind of emigres right the way up until the beginning of the 20th century, lots of anarchists in turn of the century London. Um, and often actually quite closely linked to, to immigrant Jewish communities. Big, 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 strong um, uh, immigrant Jewish anarchist community. Um, so, yeah, so you have that kind of free approach to migration with the heyday of free, free trade, British capitalism kind of expanding worldwide. Um, and as you see a kind of slump or, you know, the, the kind of slump at the sort of end of the, the Victorian period, you have the kind of 1889 strike wave. You've got um, kind of the first inklings of a sort of uh, anti-immigrant organisations, the British Brothers League, very important at the time, um, quite quite right-wing, first kind of mobilisation of real working class support for uh, anti-migration policies. Um, 1892, uh, TUC calls for total halt on migration. Uh, you have a really interesting, you know, uh, Ben Tillett, who is the, the Dockers leader, uh, again, around the, at the time of that strike wave, saying to migrant workers and this is quite a famous uh, uh, line yes you are our brothers and we will do our duty by you kind of trade union consciousness but we wish you had not come and that that kind that sense often you know recurs through the history of migration policy so the aliens act you know basically is an easy target for kind of popular hostility popular uh, anxiety about migration, but also very explicitly kind of anti-Semitic, really, in the way it's talked about in Parliament. Um, and, yeah, I mean, so so it's also aimed at kind of working-class migrants, right? So it's aimed at people without visible means of support. So if you're upper class, it's actually migration still quite easy. 1914, Alien Restrictions Act, this brought on by the war. So you've got Austrians and Germans repatriated, non-British nationals interned. Uh, other than, you know, white Russians who were fleeing the Russian Revolution, they were very welcome. Um, but but very few others were able to, to gain entry to Britain during, during World War I. Uh, you have, uh, you know, during this period, you get the first really clear definition of British uh, nationality in law, like lots of strict guidelines for the police, etc., Interwar's economic slump, not much migration, no point in coming here. Um, terrible treatment of Jewish refugees during the Second World War. Um, a really tiny minority uh, granted entry, lots more kind of deported. You had MPs complaining about Jews scurrying, mm. very loaded anti-Semitic term. Um, this is the thing with the, um, what's the kind of transport. Yeah. Um, so you have tens of thousands of young Jewish children given political refuge in Britain and this is ob obviously a totem for uh, progressive elites in this country to say how wonderful Britain is mm. well yes but that was good but many of their parents died in Dachau and in Auschwitz mm -hmm. uh, what about them? It is such a strange statue the one in Liverpool Street Station 
And I always think about that because I had sort of um, had that very rose-tinted view of the kinder transport. And so I remember talking with a friend of mine who's Jewish about the statue when we were walking past. This must have, this was years ago, <coughs> years and years ago. Um, and I was like, oh, well, you know, kinder transport, you know, statue, like how amazing. And uh, he stopped me and he was just like, yeah, but... I'm just going to ask you, where do you think their parents were? And it was like just having mm. something plummet to the pit of my stomach when I suddenly realised what that history was. So this is what's important, I think, also is alongside this, you have so very often, you know, people were continuously deported, many, many kind of people you know, to, to Canada or the United States or Australia, actually. Uh, as Cyprus well. as well, huh? Yeah. Many, many um, Jews. So... Uh, you also have the reintroduction of internment, 1941, etc. Didn't stop the British government drawing on the Commonwealth or the Empire, mm-hmm. actually, as was, um, for labour supplies during the war. You know, so you could bring in people to to aid the war effort, but uh, but certainly no no asylum here. You know, after the war, um, you you get kind of fear. So uh, industrial productivity actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, jumps back quite quite rapidly after the war. So you get the, the Labour government worrying, um, you know, worrying about labour shortages, so it has quite a liberal policy towards uh, so-called enemy prisoners, expats, etc. Um, you know, there, there are a number of kind of state-led schemes there to, to, um, to, 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 bring, to bring people in. You have, uh, you know, so, so uh, you know, even Labour also reverses its position to push women workers out of the workforce mm. after Second World War because they, mm. they realise that actually they need women in the workforce. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, all of this reasonably well known. You get in 1949 this Royal Commission on Population, which is the kind of first, I think, really explicit, well, not quite explicit, but uh, first kind of racialized anxiety about mm. this stuff. So you get uh, this desire... To, we, the, re, immigration into Britain should be welcomed without reserve, without reserve, it's a direct quote, um, but on the condition that... There's my, a reserve, that's a reserve. <laughs> migrants were of good stock and not prevented by their race or religion from intermarrying with the host population and becoming merged into it. So this is directly uh, referring to Windrush, mm-hmm. right? So Windrush is... Can, can you repeat that, sorry, that quote? Uh, so migrants should be of good stock... Yeah and were not prevented by their race or religion from intermarrying with the host population and becoming merged. That's kind of woke. It. That's like the opposite of miscegenation. No, it's not. It's, it's just the opposite <laughs> of miscegenation. No, it's saying it's saying they're black. It's, 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 saying, it's saying it's saying to like breed out. So uh, a parallel to this would be you know about the stolen generations in Australia. Mm. So stolen generations were um, Aboriginal children who were of mixed descent would mm. be forcibly taken from their parents, mm. and um, you know educated and socialised into taking on domestic service jobs. And the idea was that now that, you know, they had white heritage, that they would breed out their Aboriginal heritage. Let me me finish my point, because you're going to both disagree with me. So let me say what I want to say. First of all, it's saying that it wants a Creole element to the British, the native, quote-unquote, British. Let me finish, let me finish. Not what it's saying. No, but surely at the same time in the US, you have miscegenation laws, which it specifically states white and black people in many states can't marry. Let me finish, James. So in the 1960s, that that surprises me to the extent that I would have thought there would have been an active lobby saying they can come here, but they can't intermarry. What it's saying is that we we shouldn't be importing black people from uh, the colonies mm. uh, 
because they will be unable by race or religion to intermarry into the host population. What it's saying is we should be drawing on, you know, the Irish or things like that. So that's that's the that you know it's post Windrush, and so it's saying when is this? Nineteen forty nine. It's not post Windrush, is it? Forty eight. Oh yeah, okay. I mean, the majority come over in the 1950s, yeah. early 1950s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's saying that, that this won't be uh, a solution for us culturally. That's that's the implication of the Royal Commission. Um, anyway, well, so that move on to, me, but, yeah. to the, the, rea- the reactions to this. So you have <laughs> this stuff going on, like 50s, 60s migration boom. Yeah, 50s, 60s migration boom, like lots of labour power, again, from, from former colonies. The Commonwealth system allows them to kind of import uh, labour as needed. Um, but obviously racialized elements uh, of that means little chance of promotion. Here, lots of people in those generations saw themselves as people who would ultimately go home, which accounts for kind of very rapid distribution uh, within the UK because they saw themselves as you know, moving around wherever there's work and then thinking they'd go home. Actually, that generation often largely settled. There's a um, lot of people, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 a lot of people. It's like 10% it's of the West Indian population, lots and lots isn't of it? people, yeah. There's direct advertising as well. Right? The British state directly advertised. Um, so you have the Commonwealth Immigrants Act in 1962. This is quite famous. Um, so you have the dependents coming in like threefold because they were they were afraid that this would this act would stop kind of family reunification. Uh, and actually, the Tories in the end didn't put, put that in there. Um, so they got the worst of both worlds from from the kind of racist perspective, right? Um, but so th- this is you know state regulation of Commonwealth citizens. So they have to have a work voucher. Um, and again, this is an, another thing that's almost kind of explicitly racist in its aim, right? Like, so it differentiates between different parts of the Commonwealth. Um, there's also the concern that Kenyan Asians are going to flee here because of the uh, Africanization policy in, in the newly independent Kenya. So this is the driving the legislative panic at the time. Uh, and 71, you get the Tories bringing in kind of patriality, right? So you actually you have to have kind of an ethnic tie to the UK. So that's really, really important to them. Mm. Uh, and the Tory backbenchers are some of the, and this is a recurrent theme in UK migration policy, right? That the, the, the Tory backbenchers are very, very powerful. However, the Labour Party does not escape unscathed or cover itself in glory in this period, right? So in the 50s, the Labour Party has a reasonably good position, right? Like migration controls, bad. Um, but it kept it quiet, right? Like that kind of studied silence that often characterises Labour's relationship to migration, right, is just to like not say anything about it and hope it goes away. Um, so like the 1959 election, like the, there's very little that they say about it. And then you have kind of the right of the party sort of tap dancing out its racism in the election, but like nothing coming centrally. Um, but even like by 1962, when that bill is coming in, Dennis Healy can say to um, Commonwealth lobbying organisations that Labour will repeal that act. But by the end of that year, you've got Harold Wilson in Parliament saying Labour is not contesting the need for these migration controls and that Britain, uh, you know, you've got other Labour MPs, Wilson didn't say it, but he said, we can't be the welfare state for the whole of the Commonwealth. And this ties into what the Labour anxiety and what is an anxiety that I think is often shared around kind of social democratic left in Europe. Again, you see it at the moment in Sweden, in, in Denmark, um, this, this, this worry about the, the fragility of the welfare state. By, by 1964, the, the Labour Party is really, really willing to go hard on immigration controls. Um, so you've got lots of Labour candidates in that election really, really pushing it. 
Um, I, I think there's a, quite famously a Labour candidate in Wandsworth Central, as was, um, saying, uh, oh, large-scale immigration occurs under Tory governments. The Tory Immigration Act doesn't control it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, you know, some of the candidates you've got there pushing There's that. also weirdly, weirdly an element of truth to that. So I was reading a book. Um, I didn't buy the book. I was, you know, when you're like tucked in a corner in Judd Books and you're just like, mm-hmm, right, I'm not going to mm-hmm, buy this, but mm-hmm. I'm going to get everything I can out of it. And it was a book that was published in the early 70s and I can't remember its title but it was basically a very very techie book about immigration policy from 1962 um, onwards so it's you know looking Mm -hmm. at quite a tight window and what it charted was that actually there were always um, spikes of immigration anticipating or immediately following uh, legislation that would introduce um, more immigration mm. controls because it was family reunification and stuff like that. So weirdly, and, and I think this also shows us the danger of stats mm-hmm. in a way and, and how they, you know, what we think they tell us and then how they're mobilised and particularly the danger of attacking the the Tories on immigration numbers is because, you know, it becomes this kind of um, self-driving cycle of like, you know, mm. Um, numbers go up, more immigration policy, numbers go up, more immigration policy. And it becomes, I think, a really unproductive arena for, I think, leftists to engage themselves in. Yeah. Can I can I just respond to that, James? Mm-hmm. I think maybe you've been... Sl- I, I will very rarely say this on Navarro FM. I think you've been slightly inattentive to a particular point in that trajectory, which is that the wave of immigration that comes over, the people that come over with Windrush in 48 and the early 1950s are British citizens, which yeah. is to say, mm-hmm. as, as members of the British Empire, they are citizens. This is not the case subsequently, I think, after 1962. Yes, mm-hmm. indeed. Yeah, and, and, this is, and this is what Enoch Powell was... Again, it's about... There's a sort of kernel of truth to quite monstrous things, which is to say that when Enoch Powell made that speech, Britain was transitioning from an empire to a nation state. And we know that nation states are ethnically homogenous, they're linguistically homogenous, they're very different political entities. Well no, that's look at Turkey. The trans let me you got let me finishing today guys. I didn't know you look at you both like, like a button and making face at me. If you look at the transition from the Ottoman Empire to Turkey in the nineteen twenties, that transition is incredibly violent and you see a move to a homogenous Turkish speaking Turkish population. That means the Armenian genocide. That means the crushing of Kurds that means the crushing of Assyrians. And I think a similar process really happens in a very different way, clearly, in Britain after the Second World War. Uh, and I think, you know, you really have to be attentive to that transition from an empire to a nation state between 1945 and, let's say, 1975. Um, and, I, yeah, I think, you know... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And what, what the question of what British means. British before 1945 can be a mixed heritage, uh, South Asian or Brit, obviously within the elite class of, of the British Raj, or it can be, you know, uh, Northern Irish, British Irish, Protestant aristocracy. You know, that change is quite substantial, I think, over the course of the last 40 yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably should have been more explicit about it. That's the point I was making about the Conservative government introducing patriality yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. as a condition of entrance. No, I think right? that's a really important point, British right? British passport is no longer enough. That, but then the Labour Party does this in, you know, saying, you know, because we now have work vouchers uh, and then we're going to reduce the number of work vouchers year on year on year uh, in order to really stop the influx of migration. I mean, just the one thing to learn from this, right, is that it doesn't actually win the Labour Party elections, right? Like the right, the far right is always going to be better at this stuff mm. than, than, than the left. Um and, you know, I mean, some of the, the shocking stuff, you know, in, in the kind of 74 to 79 period, you've got kind of the x-rays taken of, of people at, at, the, at ports in order to determine age. Yeah, it happened. 74? Yeah. yeah. Virginity testing yeah, right up again, until the 1980s. Yeah. So this yeah. was actually something that my mum was really uh, involved with uh, as an anti-racist feminist activist back in the day. 
Shout out to Mumsy. Um, <laughs> so virginity testing was for South Asian migrants who are coming over for the purposes of family reunification to get married um, to their partner over here. And it was essentially a form of state-sanctioned sexual assault to determine whether or not a woman was mm. high mentally intact, I guess is how you'd put it. Can we say that? Yeah. That's an Ofcom friendly way of saying that. Um, and it went on at Heathrow Airport right up until the 1980s. Mm. Um, what so stopped it? Activists it's stopped amazing. it. Yeah. Yeah. Activists stopped, stopped it. I think the line that encapsulates this and actually encapsulates what you were talking about just now and is Bob Mellish, who is uh, 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 a Labour MP actually, um, uh, in 1974 saying, people cannot come here just because they have a British passport, full stop. I mean, that's a really, really interesting transition. I mean, the thing is, like, um, multiculturalism as a social phenomenon is historically situated in empires for far uh, earlier than it is in nation states. Mm. So if you look at the most woke political entities in history, Roman Empire, Ottoman Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, they can encompass many uh, different ethnicities and languages by virtue of the political ontology of that state apparatus. It's very different to a nation state, which has to base itself on linguistic and ethnic homogeneity. But, but may, may I disagree with you here? Because I think that it neglects, I think, the specificity of racialization, which I do agree with you. I was making a face, but I didn't entirely disagree. No, I apologise. Um, I've only had one espresso today. You're looking at it here. So <laughs> oh, that's bless, why I'm grumpy. Bless you. It's like having... It's like working with my big brother sometimes where I just needle him um, but but I do I do disagree is that I think you can't compare these different empires because the relation of race to conquest is something which I think is really specific and um, not something which you find in all empires so race wasn't important to Ottoman conquest religion was important um, in terms of that's not true I mean the whole civil service was white eastern European no no, no but it's in race as the technology of governance in which we understand it now is not particularly important well, no, of course, because it was, it, was, it was neutered precisely because of the ontology of empire, which is different to the British Empire, so, so, I'll accept so, that, so, yes. so, so that's what I'm saying. And, and moving on from there, um, just briefly, so thinking about the transition of being an empire to a nation state, is that I do think, to again, like kind of flaunt my closet Freudian credentials, is that I do think that this is the trauma, like that's at the heart of British identity. And Kojo Karam, who has been on the show uh, a few times, and really... None can do it better. He is, mm -hmm. he's, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant writer. Put it in um, an essay for Navarra Media. I'm not looking for a New England. Um, it is often said that Britain had an empire. It would be more true to say that an empire had Britain. Mm, exactly. That's exactly what I want to so, say, right? He said it better than me. Let's, <laughs> let's skip through uh, the stuff we know that then happens. You've got racism under Thatcher, Nationality Act, forced you know, talk of forced repatriation, introduction of carrier liability, one of the most punitive things for people seeking asylum rights, so you fine carriers, so you externalise controls. Then under New Labour, you have New Labour with Jack Straw saying you can get a cigarette paper between Labour and the Tories over migration, uh, PFI building new detention centres under the first Labour ministry, a push for biometrics, creation of the border agency, and then transformation post-2001 to, to really amp up the kind of security state stuff. So, potted history. <laughs> thing we haven't talked about really is the EEC introduction of free movement, the way that changes Britain's relationship to the Commonwealth in terms of uh, available labour and labour movement. Um, what I want to move on to is uh, the left's policy in the UK and the Labour Party's policy within the UK because... It does seem like there's a turn in social democracy in Europe. You have, like, the Danish Social Democrats, you know, you have one of them uh, writing a book called Welcome Mustafa. 
um, where he, he talks about, you know, actually real social democracy is very, very hostile to, to migration. Um, you have Swedish social democrats saying they're going to really tighten up um, you know, migration and they, the asylum seekers and immigrants have to learn Swedish and you can't get benefits unless you speak Swedish, etc., etc. So this is one of the turns in social democracy in Europe at the moment. Um, the Labour Party manifesto in the last election didn't have any of that, which is good. Um, it did seem to me to do some of this kind of uh, dodging of the question a bit and the, like the kind of uh, strategic silence, which mm. I can understand as an electoral calculation, but doesn't seem good enough to me politically. Um, so what did you make of that that policy and what, where where could it go now? What's the opportunity to push it now that we have this moment? I mean, we have to be generous. The last, the last general election in particular was quite specific. Brexit, collapse of the UKIP vote. I mean, I don't think reasonably they could have done anything but that. We have to be realistic to an extent. Um, obviously, there has to be a significant improvement at the next election. I mean, I've been quite open about my sort of proposed reforms. I think the first 100 days of a Labour government needs to do a few big things, probably scrap university fees, tuition fees. We can talk about all that stuff. But then I think symbolically you close down Yarlswood, symbolically. I think then pretty shortly afterwards you limit detention. And that would have to be quite transitional, I think. You know, we're not going to have a huge, massive change um, beyond symbolism in the first hundred days. But yeah, within the first five years, you would have a very substantial change around border force. Uh, and I think around the sort of more, the bigger project, which we're all involved in is the rhetorical and sort of intellectual basis for something beyond um, the migration quote unquote conversation, which has prevailed mm. for the last 20 years. Uh, and I think that has to move beyond uh, technocratic social democracy, which says they add economic value, for mm. instance, mm -hmm. and has to embrace the not realities, the inevitabilities of the 21st century, which is minority majority country. Yes, Britain's going to look very different. Yes, there'll be many more, you know, practicing Muslims and other faiths. Um, if I get my way. Well, yeah, exactly. So we need to, I think it's almost about creating a broader political culture and social movement which understands these inevitabilities and says what does social justice look like within this context i mean in terms of my interactions with the labor party still not in a still not a member uh, not even nancy diane could convince me you were a momentum advert yesterday i know I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, the things i will do for a free coffee um but the thing that drives my interaction with the Labour Party is actually better immigration policy. Mm. And because the way I see it is that for me, it's all about this citizen non-distinction binary yep. and, the, and you know, the racialised border of it. And that's where I feel like my mm. place is to push. And uh, James and I were having a conversation the other night where we were talking about like, you know, if you no constraints if you could just want if you could just want immigration policy you know what would it look like we were going through it and we were talking about this idea of mandatory citizenship mandatory citizenship for what five years mm -hmm, five years mm -hmm, if you've been mm -hmm. here and the thing that you said which I found just so like I was just like raw this man's quite smart um, was the so thing about say. mandatory citizenship is that yes it reframes citizenship as active participation responsibilities and I was like well this is really great because this has a model of community cohesion which is not about cultural assimilation for mm. once mm. Um, and it's about you know um, the social fabric in which we live and what ties it together and you're like yeah and also you can do this anti-elitist populist move by calling into question the citizenship of people with tax arrangements which ultimately do not benefit this country mm. I was like rah that is good I think the other thing is we need to think about the return of birthright citizenship we had that up until 1983 mm. in this country we need to wherever Possible. Which is very quickly. 
Which is the idea that, um, so me and you, we have come from a Commonwealth country, Aaron, and we've decided to have a baby in London. Uh, we're calling it uh, Big Nasty Bambos Charalambos mm. Saka, by the way. <laughs> and uh, while you and I are not citizens of Britain, mm. our baby Big Nasty Bambos Charalambos Saka is in fact, a British citizen. Right. And then I think that there should be an opportunity for parents to regularise their status over this period of time, um, and in particular once the child reaches the age of 18. I mean, it's Human Rights Act, they probably would have the rights to remain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the other thing that we should be looking at is eroding no recourse to public funds Mm. as much as possible. And I think that that's something which can be done incrementally. I think when it comes to handling people's claims, that should be done within the community. It shouldn't be done within detention centres. We know it's very expensive. It would be cheaper and more efficient to handle within the community. And to think about monitoring within the community. The idea of monitoring people in the community is a very, very new Labour thing. And I think we can reframe that as supporting to access um, education services, advisory services, and indeed work. I think that people who are asylum seekers in this country should have the right to work. You Mm. lift them out of the grey economy. Um, I think all these things are achievable within a parliamentary term. And it feels, can I just say how wonderful it feels to want something in policy to not just adopt this stance of I reject this, I reject this, this is the awful thing because, you know, I was talking about how it feels like to be, you know, fighting the Hydra suddenly you feel like actually I can I can want something different, I can want a different mm. situation. Yeah, so a couple of things to me, I, I mean I agree, I mean I thought some of the stuff in the Labour Manifesto was, was weak if strategic maybe, um, I think the kind of uh, we replace income thresholds with prohibition on recourse to f- public funds, I think that needs to go. Um I think, as as you were outlining, you know, I think the it's important. I think as just a general part of the political project to amp up the concept of citizenship, right? Because you know the basis for what I was saying to Ash is that, you know, we treat citizenship as if it's just a series of entitlements, right? And that's why we guard it so tightly, right? So you become a citizen, suddenly you can have all this stuff. Mm. Right? So this is a kind of consumer relationship to politics. You revivify that, you reanimate that by saying it's not just a series of entitlements, it's a series of political obligations as well. It's a series of obligations to participation uh, um, and you know involvement in democratic life. And that also means that those people who are over here, uh, who are, you know... Uh, working here should be entitled to those rights and should be you know we should feel that they actually should be part of the decision making community uh, in this country and you know and yes the people uh, who float around they say the cream floats but the scum floats as well uh, and siphon off uh, you know everything from this country and put nothing back they shouldn't be citizens because they don't fulfill those democratic obligations that is incredibly important so you know beyond that the other thing i think you know is that that allows you to to think from points of principle that actually we need to think about our policy as emerging from a left from a socialist from an internationalist perspective and not put the interests of business first not put and say well actually no i don't want uh, you know, to, to smooth the pathway uh, and put enormous resources into ensuring that billionaires get in. Tier uh, one visas, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that's important. I mean, may I make a reading recommendation for our listeners? Because mm-hmm. I do love doing this. And it is a Windrush generation uh, thinker. And writer. So, you know, when I was talking about this kind of um, very paternalistic presentation of the Windrush generation that has dominated uh, the news cycle, is that we don't talk about Claudia Jones, the communist Claudia Jones, the mother of Carnival, Claudia Jones. Mm-hmm. A tremendous book about her uh, called Left of Karl Marx, because she's buried in Highgate mm-hmm. Cemetery. 
just to the left of Karl Marx. And what I love about Claudia Jones is that she's someone who really understood social fabric. She really understood this notion of active political obligations to the place in which you live. And what I didn't know about her until recently is that she was deported, not from this country, but she was deported from the United States. Um, she became tremendously ill um, while serving a jail sentence. She was denied uh, low-salt food, and then she was um, subsequently deported. Um and so I think that this gives us a counter-history. We talk about mm. this counter-history that we need, a radical counter-history of um, migrants who, you know, participate in the place where they are but do not assimilate, who do not acquiesce, who do not capitulate. And I just think she's such a wonderful mm. figure for that. I'll be very quick. We've got a great article, by the way, on Claudia Jones at environmentmedia.com. I mean, I come from the Republican tradition, I think. Res publica, res populi. The public good is the people's thing. And that has to be the basis of self-government. It's not about what you look like or your passport. It's about the people that are here, that live and work here. They're the people that, as you rightly say, should make the political uh, decisions. Um, So we need to broaden our understanding of what the British public actually looks like and what it means. Great. Well, I think we'll leave it there. This has been Navarra FM. I have been James Butler. Ash and Aaron, thank you for joining me. Uh, hit up the navarramedia.com check, uh, website. Check out our Focus <laughs> Week. Uh, we'll be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye. Bye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.